Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. Here in Appalachia, we have this extraordinary fruit called pawpaws. The pawpaw was important enough to the Shawnee people's way of life that they even named a phase of the moon after it. That moon would indicate that was the time the pawpaws were right. It was time to go pick them. And probably also an indicator, hey, we're getting close to winter. Pawpaws were also important to the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people were forced out of their homes in southern Appalachia after the Indian Removal Act of 1831. For most tribes, that is where, you know, they believe they were created. It's sacred areas, they're sacred plants, it's where they're dead or buried. It's very important that that people who are interested in learning their culture and being reconnected to their culture understand what it was that sustained their ancestors. This week, we'll hear how members of the Choctaw and Shawnee nations are reconnecting to their roots and tracing their family stories back to Appalachia and to Pawpaws. That and more coming up this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. The pandemic has made some people more eager to go back to food traditions, growing gardens, sourcing food from local farmers. Maybe it's that we're discovering just how fragile our food system is, how vulnerable we are if we can't sustain ourselves by growing and foraging foods. Appalachia is ripe for growing our local food system, including foods that grow wild in our woods. This brings me to one of fall's most fantastic treasures, pawpaws. If you've never tasted one, it's kind of like the love child of a banana and a mango. Kind of. It's delicious. It's sweet. It's, it's, it's kind of this custardy texture. Zach Fowler is a biologist in Morgantown, West Virginia, and he directs a 90-acre arboretum owned by West Virginia University, where pawpaws grow along the Monongahela River. It's the only member of the genus Essimina that we have this far north. It's basically a tropical plant that's, that's somehow ended up here in Appalachia. Pawpaw only lives where there are winters. It needs a cold period, and so and so if you go to like tro- Florida, you won't you won't find pawpaw. A lot of people sort of questioned how how that happened. You know, how did a tropical plant with these giant seeds? They're not blown on the wind. They're not dispersed up by water. Even currently, it doesn't really have a very good animal dispersal mechanism because the seed is so large. But the theory is that the main dispersal mechanism that moved it from its from where the the tropical relatives live up into the temperate regions was extinct megafauna like woolly mammoths and ground sloths. Pawpaws are, um, they're not actually that rare in, in, in West Virginia or, or in the Appalachian region. Typically the, the best place to find them is along creeks or rivers. You can watch a video of Zach Fowler gathering pawpaws on our website. It's part of our Edible Mountain series. Find it at wvpublic.org. If you've never heard of pawpaws, it might be because they just don't really jibe with modern human food systems. This small yellow and green fruit has a short growing season, late summer to early October, and a really short shelf life. In fact, I've often heard it said that if you pull them from the tree, they aren't ripe. And if they're on the ground, they're overripe. So you kind of have to catch them as they fall. So they're kind of like Appalachia's Zen fruit you got to be there in the moment and just enjoy them. Or I guess you can do what my husband does and collect like 30 pounds and turn them into jelly, which I can tell you is a labor of love. Neil Peterson is a plant scientist who's credited with helping bring the pawpaws back to existence as a cultivated fruit. 
Yes, you can plant a pawpaw tree in your backyard, and chances are, if you buy a tree, it's thanks to Neil's work. Pawpaws in the wild are very seedy, and the flavor ranges all over the place from actually disgusting, really bitter, with very little pulp, you know, but it can thin up to the max of excellence and deliciousness where you get your first bite and you go, oh, wow. I mean, that was my reaction. Oh, wow. Why is this unknown? Why is this only in the woods? Everyone should have a chance to know this. These are some of six of my varieties. Wabash, Potomac, Allegheny, Susquehanna, not pretty fruit, wonderful inside. Shenandoah, yeah. My personal favorite, which is only personal, is this one called Susquehanna. Yeah, it's very sweet. It has a firmer texture. The texture is very much like a Haas avocado. So it's, it's buttery, but very melting in the mouth. And it holds up well over time. It's, it's firmer and it just has a really rich flavor. Um, and that's something I like. Now, people who are new to pawpaws may find that flavor cloying. And so one like this Shenandoah, which is a, is a widely accepted variety by people who are new to pawpaw because it's mild. Sweet, it's just a very well-balanced flavor and well-accepted. Um, complex, the first flavor you get in your mouth is as it progresses towards the back, it changes. And then it has a very long aftertaste. Uh, so kind of like wine that way. And um, there are notes of other, you, you kind of may recognize, oh, it tastes a little bit like banana. Oh, I think I taste some mango or pineapple in it. Uh, there's always a taste in it that all you can say is it's pawpaw. And you, once you've tasted it, <laughs> you'll remember it. For those who are into it, it's like it's like their secret. Now, we're, we're looking here in a wild setting of uh, a pawpaw tree. This, this one with the very large leaves. The leaves are 10 and 12 inches long and drooping. This one we're looking at is about 12 feet tall. Yeah. And how old would this tree be? Oh, I don't know. That's a... How old are you? <laughs> he says it's 10 years old. <laughs> Yeah, but it's growing under all these bigger trees, and that's that's pawpaws for you. They are very adapted to the shade, and because they're small, they don't outgrow the other trees. They grow in the shade of bigger trees like sycamores and tulip poplars and maples, etc. Ash trees. Yeah, they love being down near the near the river. Where oh where's poor little Susie? Where oh where's poor little Susie? Where oh where's poor little Susie? Way down yonder in the pawpaw patch. I learned it as a kid before I even knew what a pawpaw was. They would teach us that song. A lot of people think of uh, adults I've run into. I thought, oh, I just thought pawpaw was some sort of legend. Let's go find her. Come on, boys. Let's go find her way down yonder in the pawpaw patch. They do form patches because it's their biology to sucker from the roots and just keep on suckering from the roots. So you may have an original tree, and as time goes by, two and three feet away, six feet away, a new sprout comes up in all sorts of directions. And they keep doing that until you have a patch that maybe covers a quarter of an acre, all from one original tree. And that's the pawpaw, the proverbial pawpaw patch.
That was Pawpaw farmer and botanist Neil Peterson. His story is featured in the latest episode of a podcast we really like called the Mountain Traditions Podcast. In this next part of the story, Neil talks about the first time he tasted a pawpaw over 40 years ago and how that led him to research the rise and fall of pawpaws as a cultivated crop in the early 1900s. It was 1976, and I was a grad student at West Virginia University. I was a teaching assistant in an ecology course, and that took us down to the floodplain of the Monongahela River. Uh, that was like once or twice a week we would be down there examining. It was a small mammal study. Um, but I couldn't help but notice that over on one side, beautiful place, by the way, a nice big patch of pawpaws over on one side. So I went back on a weekend and I wanted to see the fruit. The odd thing was, you might say, is that I knew what pawpaws were as a kid because some grew in our backyard. But my parents, <laughs> when my dad was from Chicago, I had no idea that this might be edible. So I never tasted one until that 1976. And I went back and it's like my first bite was that revelation. Well, I just did what our professors were trying to beat into our heads. When you're doing research, don't reinvent the wheel. Go to the library and find out what everyone else has done. But what I found, there was an article, two articles, 1916, 1917, in the Journal of Heredity. They were advertising for the best pawpaws and offering a $100 prize. And they got all sorts of responses from cans, mostly through the Midwest. In 1917, they published the results with photographs, and uh, the prize-winning tree came from a Mrs. Frank Ketter in Ironton, Ohio. They said it was a fabulous fruit, better than they had anticipated there was any pawpaw fruit with thicker skin. And there was a, a horticulturist in Illinois by the name of Benjamin Buckman. He was elderly at that time, and he, he learned of the contest too late. Uh, his, his trees had kind of finished fruiting, but he gave us, sent a letter, and he said, I have these 10 named cultivars. He got his cultivars because he was like any good scientist. He's in communication with all sorts of other people. So he got friends who were in Arkansas sending him material, people in Kentucky sending him material. There was something like 39 named varieties in, in 1920-something or 1930, and all but one of them was lost. It didn't receive. It didn't receive any sustained interest. And then World War II intervened. After the war, there began to be renewed interest, but not building on what had been done before. Uh, there was Corwin Davis. He's very significant in Michigan, near Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he selected a number of cultivars. And interest began to renew. And we also now have these varieties and others. I'm not the only one breeding. But we're trying to, to improve on what nature has given us. Like a, a, a wild pawpaw that you open up that's long and, and cylindrical, it may, look bad, it may look really wonderful, but you cut it open and it's mostly seeds. And around each seed is some pulp. Well, that's, that's fine if you're walking in the woods and now you get to have a free treat. It's not gonna sell next to seedless oranges and seedless grapes, and you name it, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Paw Paws to the people. I mean, it's going to be some year it'll be in the grocery stores because people will demand it. And somebody, and they'll come up with varieties that are less fragile. Yeah. And if people demand it, it'll start to happen. But I think it's wonderful you can find it in farmers markets. It makes it that, once again, that special thing. Gee, it's almost like your secret, you know, that you can't find it in the grocery stores. And you can only find it for about one month a year late August, early October. That story was produced by Leah Scarpelli and Michael Snyder as part of the Mountain Traditions podcast. We posted a link on our website where you can see photos and learn about the project. It's at wvpublic.org. Even if you can't find a pawpaw in a grocery store, it has been part of the human food system for thousands of years here in Appalachia. It's one of the foods many indigenous people lost when they were pushed away from their ancestral lands, but not completely lost, because it turns out many carried the pawpaws with them. Inside Appalachia reporter Brian Costco has more. It's early August, a fresh summer afternoon in Jackson County, Ohio. Behind me is the Leo Petroglyph, a huge rock carved with images of animals and humans. It's the work of indigenous Americans who visited this site over 1,000 years ago. I'm here with Chris Schmiel, the founder of the Ohio Pawpaw Festival. What we're searching for isn't made of stone, but just like the petroglyph, it survived here for thousands of years. These pawpaws are on the edge of the forest. There's a clump of them about 15 or so feet away, and there's, you know, they grow in a patch. Chris is an expert in all things pawpaw, and over the years, he's noticed something about where pawpaws grow. It just seems like every one of these ancient sites I hear about or talk about with someone, they mention there's pawpaws everywhere at places like Shawnee Lookout, the Serpent Mound, there's pawpaws there, this place. The mounds are earthworks that functioned as graves and ceremonial sites for the Hopewell, Adena, and later the Fort Ancient people a Native American cultural group that flourished in the Ohio River Valley from about 1000 to 1600 AD. Some scholars believe that the Fort Ancient people who made the Leo Petroglyph were ancestors of the Shawnee, who by the 17th century would call this part of Ohio home. These are ancient native plants. They're well adapted to our soils and the region. Say these things have been here for a long time. We know that the pawpaw was an important resource for the Shawnee. How? Because even after being forcibly removed from this region by the U.S. government in the early 19th century, it left an imprint on Shawnee culture. Joel Barnes is one of the major guardians of Shawnee culture and language in the present day. I'm the uh, language director and archives director for the Shawnee tribe. I'm also a Shawnee tribal member. He explains that the Shawnee mark time by the phases of the moon. And that means pawpaw month. It's the month of September. That literally means pawpaw moon. The pawpaw was important enough to the Shawnee people's way of life that they named a moon after it. That moon would indicate that was the time the pawpaws were right. It was time to go pick them. And probably also an indicator, hey, we're getting close to winter. Joel's ancestors were forcibly moved from their Ohio Valley home in Appalachia by the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The Shawnee were sent first to Kansas, and then after the Civil War, they were pushed into Oklahoma. 
For the Shawnee, the pawpaw is a direct tie to Appalachia and their uprooted past. It's hard to find out in Oklahoma because the state is located at the edge of the tree's climate zone. I do know in present day we have some tribal members that have planted them out in their yards just to get them to grow. They're not quite that abundant in this part of Oklahoma. Once you start moving east to get over into Missouri and around Joplin area, you start seeing them more and more of them pawpaw trees. Joel does remember eating the fruit when he was growing up. It was rare, but it existed. We never did get really fancy with it. We would just cut it open, peel it, and just eat it. It was pretty good, and I've ate some off and on throughout my life, but it's been a while since I've had any. Cut off from their ancestral homeland and the plants that grow there, Joel says the Shawnee have seen some of the pawpaw's cultural relevance fade with time. Some of these old folks, they all had them, they've all ate them, but there's nothing really as far as any type of ceremonial dance or any type of ceremony in regards to the pawpaws. Just if there ever was, nobody knows. But somehow, through all of that upheaval and across all those miles, the Shawnee's connection to the pawpaw tree has endured. It is a food largely absent from their physical surroundings, but traces of it still persist in memory and in the Shawnee language itself. That means I'm hungry for papa. Dr. Devin Mahasua has devoted her life to recovering lost knowledge of indigenous foods. She is a professor at the University of Kansas, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, and also a Chickasaw descendant. Distressed by the lack of knowledge of traditional foodways among her people, Devin has made pawpaw and other pre-contact foods a focus of her research. I have just spent decades taking a look at travelers' reports, you know, people who observed back in the 1700s coming through. Nobody ever mentioned pawpaw. You know, they just say this strange fruit. She hasn't found any traditional pawpaw recipes among the Choctaw, who called the Mississippi Valley and Southern Appalachia home before they were forced west. She says there's a reason for that. Like a banana, the pawpaw has a short window of ripeness. That meant that it was probably consumed right on the spot, a convenient fast food. You know, they would just wait until the time to eat it. They don't store well, you know, and maybe they dried it. It could be that they mixed it with other things, which is what I like to do. Despite the difficulty of obtaining written records, Devin has her own special ways of preparing pawpaw that extend its use. She mashes it mixes it with berries, cooks it down into a flavorful sauce, and then freezes it. Occasionally, she'll add it to cornbread. And even though they had to forage to find pawpaws, her Choctaw grandparents introduced her to the fruit when she was a child. My grandparents lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and they had a massive garden. It was a model of my grandmother's ancestors when they lived in Mississippi. And they had all kinds of trees. They didn't have pawpaws, but they knew where they were. Just like Joel, Devin has childhood memories of pawpaw, even though it was scarce. Her first taste was in her grandmother's kitchen. It was delicious. It was just the most amazing flavor. It was like a sort of like a banana mango combo with a hint of a little strawberry. Devin runs a popular Facebook group on indigenous foodways. There's a lot of interest among American Indians in getting reacquainted with the food their ancestors ate, she says. But many are disappearing or not available where they live, like the pawpaw. It's one of these foods where some people will never get a chance to taste it. 
There are a few pawpaw trees in Kansas where she currently lives, but the fruit tends to be on private property and inaccessible. I just wish people who had them on their property, you know, recognized and appreciated what they have. Devin is attempting to regain access to the food her ancestors ate. Three years ago, she decided to try and grow pawpaw herself. She's propagating about 50 seeds in containers and eventually hopes to transplant them. It's a long process. I ate the fruit and then I packed the seeds away and I put them in the refrigerator. They overwintered. And then I took them out at the end of February and planted them. And nothing happened for months and months. And it wasn't until the end of July that finally one sprouted. It'll be years until they're ready to transplant and even longer until they bear fruit. So why is she going through all this trouble? Devin believes that not having access to where your ancestors lived and the foods they ate is a form of historical trauma that needs to be healed. For most tribes, that is where, you know, they believe they were created. It's sacred areas, they're sacred plants, it's where they're dead or buried. It's very important that that people who are interested in learning their culture and being reconnected to their culture understand what it was that sustained their ancestors. As the pawpaw demonstrates, food touches so many aspects of culture, including language, seasonal life, and cosmological stories. The food teaches us all of these different lessons that expand into every aspect of your life. By bringing these foods and their lessons back into circulation, Devin hopes to address some of the losses her people have sustained. It's easy to take the abundance of pawpaw for granted in the hills of Appalachia. But far away, on the plains of Oklahoma, it's a piece of precious history for those who once called this region home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brian Costco in Athens, Ohio. Brian is a member of the Inside Appalachia Folkways Reporting Corps. You can hear more of our Folkways stories at wvpublic.org. Hey, one more thing about pawpaws. You can save your seeds and maybe consider replanting them in the woods near your home or even in your backyard. Information about how to do that is in this great book called Pawpaw in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit by Andy Moore. Check it out. Up next, we hear an interview with author Annette Sanook Clapsaddle, whose new novel explores her own tribe's history and the push and pull to leave and return home. What was most important to me is not, you know, the online reviews, but can I go into the grocery store (laughs) and not hide from people or people be happy to talk to me about the book? And we learn about a group of rock climbers who are trying to rename climbing routes that bear racist and sexist names. That's coming up in just a minute. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Glennis Board. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Annette Sanook Clapsaddle is a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina. 
She just published a novel called Even As We Breathe, set in 1942. The main character is a 20-year-old man named County Sequoia, who lives on the Cherokee Reservation, but leaves to find work in Asheville. Here's Clapsaddle reading from the opening of the novel. About the place, when I take you there or when you find it on your own, just know that what the old folks say is true. This land is ours because of what is buried in the ground, not what words appear on a paper. But also know this, what is buried in the ground isn't always what you think. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the story, the beginning of all of us who call ourselves homo sapiens. Fitting, I guess, that what I found buried, just as I was trying to figure out how to become a man and still be human, was the very thing that threatened to take it all away. Just when I began to see what taking control of our own life might look like, I realized I was not who I thought, and neither was this place. That summer in 1942, when I met her, really met her, before I found myself in a white man's cage and entangled in the barbed wire that destroyed my father, I left the cage of my home in Cherokee, North Carolina. I left these mountains that both hold and suffocate and went to work at the pinnacle of luxury and privilege, Asheville's Grove Park Inn and Resort. I guess I had convinced myself that I could become fortunate by proximity, escape Uncle Bud's tirades and my grandmother Leishy's empty kitchen cabinets just by driving a couple of hours up the road. It sounded good to tell folks I was raising money for college, but the truth was I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't want to do it there anymore. And if I stayed any longer, I would become rooted so deeply, I might as well have been buried. That's Annette Clapsaddle reading from her novel, Even As We Breathe. What a powerful idea that leaving home is a way to avoid becoming so rooted to a place you might as well be buried. The main character in Clapsaddle's novel is this young man who leaves his home in Cherokee, North Carolina, and goes to work at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, The book takes place in the middle of World War II. Grove Park Inn actually played a part in the war. Well, kind of. The inn was the temporary home for prisoners of war, diplomats from the Axis countries, and their families. In the novel, one of the diplomats' daughters goes missing, and people suspect County Sequoia partly because of their prejudice against Native Americans. Clapsaddle spoke with Eric Douglas about why she thinks it's important to examine this poorly understood time in North Carolina's history. First, just tell me about the book. Tell me about Even As We Breathe. So Even Even As We Breathe um, is set in the summer of 1942 at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, which is a a resort uh, hotel in Asheville. And Um, That summer, they held access diplomats as prisoners of war. And in the novel, my protagonist, County, leaves Cherokee, North Carolina, to travel uh, to Asheville to work at the Grove Park uh, that summer as a member of uh, the grounds crew. He's accompanied by um, another young woman named Essie, another Cherokee woman um, named Essie, who goes to work there as well. While he's at the resort, he is accused um, of being involved in the disappearance of a diplomat's daughter um, and has to to prove his innocence. This is a bit of history. I mean, just the idea that that access diplomats were were kept there, I had never heard of. Is that 
is that commonly known in for people in the area or it is not commonly known as far as I can tell. It's it's been covered very little in um, media. I, I actually came across this story a few years ago, um, just as a, a paragraph in a, in a um, Asheville Citizen Times article. Um, and the Grove Park Inn has a book out on its history, and and it is it covers this time period very minimally because there are just few records. What did you decide to to combine this little bit of history with then the the Cherokee history and and bring those two cultures together? I tend to think about how things are connected in general, and so I had that bit of uh, information about the history of the Grove Park, and also in my background history, I knew that. Um, Indian reservations were used as um, sites for Japanese internment um, out west. So um, I had always found that topic interesting as well, that, um, you know, that these are the sites that we put America's first people and um, people that we consider to be potential enemy, you know, citizens and potential <laughs> enemies of uh, our country. And so the irony of that um, was really strong for me. So I wanted to just amp up the volume on that and, and take um, a member of a tribe and, and place them amongst uh, this setting where already issues of identity and, and fear of the other and who belongs in this place and when they belong in this place and when they don't. And while, while that was already going on. Now you're a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee yourself, correct? Correct. Uh, yep. what, what's that like going back into your, your own personal history? I, I look at it two different ways. There, there is the, the superficial changes that um, we have made um, as a place, as Cherokee, North Carolina, as the Koala boundary, but as a people as well and how we exercise our sovereignty and things like that. So, um, you know, there, it's kind of taking a, that layer of um, the superficial changes off the table and really looking at what our community values have been for centuries. I think that that hasn't changed all that much. Um, and that was really a focus. So when I when I think about like historical research of place and able to write this this work of fiction, I spent a lot of time actually looking at, at photographs um, from the time period and seeing how the landscape has changed, which tells you a lot about how the community has changed if the landscape changes. Um, and what that means for uh, interactions between people, you know, how long does it, did it take for a neighbor to get to a neighbor's house compared to today? How long did it take for someone from Cherokee to get to Asheville compared to what it, what it does today? And that changes, um, changes a lot of things. It changes a lot of social dynamics as well. What's the reaction been from the tribe to the book? I have been really fortunate um, to have a lot of support from my community. Um, and I've, I've said this before to people, but what was most important to me is not, you know, the online reviews that will come out about the book, but 
can I go into the grocery store <laughs> and not hide from people? Or uh, can I go in the grocery store and, and people be happy to talk to me about the book? And I've had those experiences and, and it's really been, um, I don't, you know, it's just been reaffirming for me that people who, you know, don't traditionally follow um, all the new books that are out and they're not, you know, voracious you know, readers of fiction have, because, you know, I'm from their community, they've picked it up and they've read it and they want to talk about it. Um, so it's been really po- a positive experience so far for me. Annette Clapsaddle is a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee in Cherokee, North Carolina. Her new book is set in Asheville during World War II. It's called Even As We Breathe. This year, many of us have been wrestling with different questions about racism in our society. These conversations are happening on city streets, in Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds, in executive offices and athletic fields, and even among rock climbers. Rock climbing is a hobby that brings many people to explore the natural beauty of the Appalachian Mountains. But some members of the climbing community are challenging the names of some climbing routes, like Tar Baby, and Slave Fingers. Many other names we can't even say on radio. Reporter Zach Harold has been talking with folks about how these conversations are playing out among climbers. We'll hear more of his story in next week's episode. For a sneak peek, our associate producer Eric Douglas sat down with Zach to hear a bit of the backstory behind his reporting. I was laying in bed one night, uh, scrolling through Instagram, as I do, not really looking at anything, And I came across a post from one of my friends, Olivia Morris, who lives down in the gorge. It was a repost from this guy named Ronnie Black. Ronnie tagged a bunch of people down in Fayetteville, Waterstone Outdoors, the local outfitter, several of the local restaurants, NRAC, the New River Alliance of Climbers, um, the advocacy group, and, and just really urging them to take on the issue of racial discrimination in, in rock climbing, uh, and particularly urging them to, to get behind this movement to change the names of the rock climbing routes. I'm not a rock climber, so I, I don't really, I didn't really understand what all this was about, but I, I sensed that in the, the larger context of the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests we've seen around the country, that something was going on in Fayetteville, and I needed to figure out what that was. Some of these names are pretty shocking. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm stunned that somebody thought that was a good idea in this modern era. Um, yeah, are, are these relatively new names or have some of them been around 50 years? I mean, rock climbing has, has been gaining in popularity over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. A lot of these routes were put up in the 80s and the 90s. Um, that's, that's when rock climbing seems like it really exploded in the New River Gorge. So it, it dates back about, you know, 30 going on 40 years ago. But even then, some of these names, I mean, you could say we live in different times now, but some of these names really, I can't imagine would have flown 40 years ago. It was ugly back then, but it's just, in the harsh light of day now, it, it, it's just unconscionable. And there's a bigger issue here 
if the sport is going to continue to grow, it can't be just 20 something white guys. One of the people you, you spoke to in your story is, is a black gentleman originally from Jamaica. If you're going to expand the industry, if you're going to expand the sport, that kind of stuff doesn't fly. The thing that animated DJ to really take this on, DJ is an, is an admitted introvert and doesn't like you know calling attention to himself whatsoever. But he had this experience on Memorial Day weekend, which just happened to be the same time that, that George Floyd was killed there in Minneapolis, where he was he was climbing these routes that had offensive names and and it ruined his time. It just made him in a bad mood, obviously for obvious reasons. And and he realized how much a name could have an effect on him. But the other thing he told me that, that has really animated him to get involved with this is that his ten year old son is has started to climb with him now. And when they're out on a route, he doesn't want to have to open up the guidebook and look at a, a route called Cool Crux Climbing, spelled with all Ks, and have to answer questions about the KKK to, to his son. You know, not, not the moment when you want to be having that conversation or, or explain to his son why a route is called Slave Fingers. He... He's really trying to make this sport, even though, like we said, even though some of these routes are just, the damage has been done for DJ. He, he'll never be able to enjoy them. He really hopes that now that his son is common, maybe his son won't have to deal with some of these things that, that he's had to deal with. If, if you want tourism to grow in West Virginia, you can't stand for, <laughs> for any of these things that are an impediment to other people coming here. You know, even as a white guy, I wouldn't want to. I would look, take one look at this. I don't want to climb with those people. It makes you heart sick to to read some of these names. I, I just that brand of humor is is completely lost on me. And you're right. I, I think it's it's increasingly lost on on a lot of people. Do you think it's humor, or do you think it's something deeper? Or did you get that sense from your the people you interviewed? From the sense that I got from the people that I interviewed, it was body like edgy humor that's what they were going after i mean time and time again you hear people say these these folks aren't racist rock climbers are a eccentric bunch but they're also an open-minded bunch uh, one person points out to me that the new river gorge hosts one of the largest lgbt climbing events in the country um you know you walk down the street in fayetteville and you see rainbow flags and you see a few Black Lives Matter signs hanging up. I mean, it's it's a pretty progressive place, especially in West Virginia. So I really don't think this was people out there trying to promote white supremacy or promote racism. Sounds like the, the climbing world is uh, set for a bit of a change. Yeah, and this is something... Everybody that I talked to pointed out, this is not a West Virginia thing. This is a climbing thing. Anywhere you look in the country that has rock climbing, they are having the exact same conversation we're having here. Because it, it, it's not just people coming to the gorge. Because the people that put up all these routes and the people that climb in the New River Gorge aren't necessarily people from West Virginia. We have people coming here from all over the country, all over the world, to climb on our rock faces. 
so every climbing community in the country is having the exact same conversations we're having here because it's it it's just been part of the culture and now that it's been dragged into the light of day people are just deciding this isn't going to be part of our culture anymore we'll hear zach's story about rock climbers in next week's show When I talk to people who have left Appalachia, they often say one thing they really miss is the changing seasons. For the last part of our show, we're going to ruminate on that with two stories about change. We'll start with West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Jim Lang, host of the music show Eclectopia. He sent us this ode to the cacophonous sounds of autumn. Fall is here without a doubt. And with it comes my favorite autumnal sounds, like... Brian Eno. Or Gustav Mahler. But there is one sound that profoundly makes me realize that summer is over. Yes, the cicada announces the season's change like no other. I wanted to know more about cicadas and their cacophonous songs. I spoke with entomologist Dr. Tracy Lesky. So uh, what exactly are cicadas? Well, you know, cicadas are insects that belong to what we call the order Hemiptera, which is the order of insects to which the true bugs belong. Not all insects are bugs, but there are a group of insects that are literally referred to by entomologists as bugs, and cicadas are one of those. Are they special in any kind of way? Oh, yeah. Cicadas are really interesting. Cicadas are conspicuously known because of their interesting developmental attributes. And one of these, in the case of our annual or dog day cicadas, is their very conspicuous emergence during the later part of the summer. The cicadas actually have a really interesting life history, sort of how they grow up, in that the juvenile stage of adult cicadas, the nymphs, live in the soil. But what's interesting is those nymphs that are in the soil they actually spend two to five years in the soil completing their development. So, you know, some of those dog day cicadas that you see emerging literally are the same age as some of our kindergartners going to school this year. And how do they make that sound? Well, that's the adult stage. And so in this case, it's the males that make the sound. The females do not make those sounds. The males have what we would call almost a pair of built-in drums in their abdomen, and we refer to these as timbles. And these timbles produce the sound based on this very tiny ribbed membrane that is there on their abdomen, and then it's powered by muscle contraction. So those muscles uh, contract and relax, and as they do that, it creates a sound. And the other piece that's interesting is the male's abdomen is nearly hollow, and so this allows the sound to be amplified. These are males calling to females, and they're just sort of 
I mean, why are they doing this is what I'm going to say. So, yeah, the males are doing this literally to find a mate. They are trying to attract females to their location. So, you know, it may sound like a bit of a cacophony to us, but, you know, it's sweet music to a female cicada. (laughs) So, while we may be hearing this, female cicadas may be hearing this. Bubbles, bangles, hear how they jing jingalinga. Bubbles, bangles, bright shiny bees. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jim Lang. Since the pandemic began earlier this year, health experts have reported increases in people struggling with depression and anxiety. The worry over our health and the health of our families is compounded by economic stressors. Some of us have found solace through simple acts like taking a walk outdoors, hugging our dogs, baking cookies. And as we'll hear in our next story, sometimes serenity and joy can be found on a motorcycle ride through the Appalachian Mountains. Marie Bongiovanni lives in a cabin outside the town of Boone, North Carolina. She's a cancer survivor, and news about the pandemic brought on new waves of anxiety. She shared this story about how she found a way to make peace with her new reality, taking one day at a time. Stay safe. How many times have you heard that phrase over the past six months? And how many times have you been given advice on how to avoid getting sick? Masks, gloves, disinfectants, obsessive hand-washing. The list of ways to minimize risk goes on and on, and yet the number of COVID-related deaths continues to rise. In late March, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper issued a stay-at-home order and asked residents to avoid non-essential travel. And for the first time since we moved to Boone, its heavy traffic subsided. Even the four-lane highways in our mountain town grew quiet. The National Park Service closed sections of the Blue Ridge Parkway near where we live, My husband Dale and I ride motorcycles, and the Blue Ridge Parkway with its long, sweeping curves is one of our favorite places to ride. But for months without traffic, the parkway was also strangely silent. Riding a motorcycle is a high-risk sport, even when not in a pandemic. As the news in early spring reported an increased demand for health care, the thought of riding started to seem sort of frivolous. Dale and I decided to play it safe and leave our triumphs parked in the garage for a while. Our decision wasn't easy, but we didn't want to risk needing a hospital bed or being exposed to the virus in an ER waiting room. So we started hiking every morning instead. Before COVID, I'd felt like there was no better way to get to know the mountains than on two wheels. I've never felt the Earth's contours as distinctly as when I'm on my Bonneville. There's nothing like the rush of leaning into curves on a switchback or glimpsing long-range views riding on the Blue Ridge Parkway. But once we started hiking, I felt an even stronger connection to the Appalachian Mountains and temperate rainforest. I sensed something sacred in shafts of sunlight filtered through the trees. And I felt something ancient in the energy of Boone Fork rushing across huge boulders at Hebron Falls. I had to slow down while hiking across boulder fields, and I had to carefully place one foot after another on paths with rocks and gnarly roots. Taking it one step at a time helped me to adapt to uncertainty, and at times I even liked not knowing exactly where the trail would lead. Until this summer, I'd only enjoyed the Linco Viaduct as we passed over it on our bikes. This long, elevated roadway wraps around Grandfather Mountain, 
and was designed to preserve rather than cut through its southern face. But it wasn't until I saw the viaduct from an entirely different angle that I began to appreciate its engineering. We were following a trail below the Blue Ridge Parkway, and I looked up to see the curving expanse of concrete almost directly above our heads. For months, it was easy to hold our decision not to ride. Springtime in the mountains was cold and damp, and the number of COVID cases continued to rise. We heard far fewer bikes than usual, even after they had reopened the Blue Ridge Parkway. One Saturday evening in late July, a group of six bikers on Harleys rolled into our usually quiet community. They had rented a cabin with a wide front porch, and their voices grew louder as they partied into the night. At first, I was bothered by the noise, and I wished that I could have their carefree attitude, not only about riding, but about being in such close proximity to each other. By the next morning, I had started to vicariously enjoy the familiar rumbling of bikes. As the riders headed out each morning, I remembered what it was like to ride. I vividly recalled the zen of being on my bike, and I wondered which twisty mountain roads they might explore. And when I heard their bikes come back up the mountain each evening, I'd be grateful to know that they had safely returned. They checked out of their rental after a week-long stay, and after having enjoyed the sound of their bikes and camaraderie, I felt as if my vacation had ended. Over the past month, we've started to see more and more motorcycles, and I heard a different kind of rumble a few weeks ago. Our cabin's roof started to creak, like when the wind gusts up to 70 miles per hour. The walls started to vibrate, and the potted plants on the porch started to shake. I later learned that the epicenter of the 5.1 magnitude earthquake was in Sparta, about 40 miles from our cabin. After the earthquake, my commitment to Virgo riding started to waver. Our cabin's vibration reminded me that even my full-face motorcycle helmet hadn't been enough to protect me from stage 4 cancer in my neck 11 years ago. It also reminded me that life is short. In these times of uncertainty, is it even possible to really stay safe? And I realized that the question is not so much whether it's worth it to take risks, but to decide which risks are worth taking. We made that decision and started riding again a couple weeks ago. During lockdown, not riding had seemed like the responsible choice, both for others and ourselves. But as the pandemic goes on and on, I've stopped searching for the news on COVID statistics and updates on whether there is a shortage of hospital beds. Our daily hikes helped me learn how to deal with uncertainty and take it step by step. But riding even more so demands that I be fully present in the moment. On my bike, I need to stay focused on the road as well as my surroundings. I have to be fully attentive and watch for deer, detours, gravel, fallen rocks, and distracted drivers. I can never be sure what I'll find around a bend or when asphalt might turn to dirt. But I'll keep my eyes on the road as far as I can see and keep moving, taking it curve by curve by curve. For Inside Appalachia, this is Marie Bonjavani in Boone, North Carolina. Marie's thoughts resonate with me. I feel like we all kind of tend to crave control, but in reality, we can't know what's around the next bend in the road. If the pandemic's taught us anything, it's taught us that. So let's just 
all take a collective breath and remember to be gentle with ourselves. I mean it. We're going to take a beat. Ready? Good. Great. Thanks. Love you. Mean it. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Spencer Elliott, and Kai Cater. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WBPublic.org. Visit WBPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.